was 1937 in Los Angeles, and it was a hell of a Vienna. I ran with these older guys, but for them it was the same, mostly breathing hard air and robbing gas stations that didn't have any money. And a few lucky among us worked part-time as Western Union messenger boys. We slept in rented rooms that weren't rented, and we drank ale and wine with the shades down, being quiet, quiet, and then awakening the whole building with a fist fight, breaking mirrors and chairs and lamps, and then running down the stairway just before the police arrived. Some of us soldiers of the future, running through those empty, starving streets and alleys of Los Angeles, and all of us getting together later in Pete's room, a small cube of space under a stairway. There we were, packed in there, without women, without cigarettes, without anything to drink, while the rich pawed away at their many choices, and the young girls left them, the same girls who spit at our shadows as we walked past. The Scholars and Iron Podcast. You just listened to Charles Bukowski's The Rat, recorded by the author in the mid-1970s. Bukowski, whose irreverent, whiskey-soaked style of prose remains to my mind one of the few American poets to really grapple with the harsh realities of working-class life in America. He's an underdog critic of a culture who lent a masculine voice to all that he saw and experienced. A few weeks back, I spoke to Swede Burns, who many of you already know, the lead powerlifter, author of the famous Fifth Set, and he's also a published poet in his own right. His first collection called Clues About Ghosts, Poems of Intimacy and Despair. Sweet has been compared to poets like Bukowski, and he touches on a kaleidoscope world of romantic themes, love loss, miscommunication, in a very contemporary, relatable manner. As a poetry lover myself, I had a great time talking to Sweet, as we discussed about cultural divides, poets, and even read a few poems, one of which is from his upcoming book, The Thirteenth Ghost. So let's get into it. Sweet, for those who don't know you, could you give us an idea of where you grew up and what it was like? Okay. So, um, well, I was born in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is, uh, it's on the, the outskirts of Philadelphia. Uh, I lived in, uh, in a city called Chester, which is, if I'm not mistaken, it's still the murder capital of the world, if not the United States, per capita. So it's a really bad, uh, it's a really bad, I would say, I mean, my neighborhood was was pretty rough growing up, you know. Um, there's two projects right there, like the Sun Village Projects, and there's another project that's right, like housing projects. So it was a rough neighborhood, and my mother worked at a deli. And uh, I don't know, I kind of, I started out on the street, and I got my ass kicked when I was young. And... um I think I had my nose broken before I was 10. And, um, yeah. So, there was that. From there, we, uh, 
we moved to a different, I want to say I was probably 12 years old, we moved to a different area, different suburb called Clifton Heights. Um, not really the Chester as a suburb, but it's not in the city. It's actually just a really, really rough pocket. It's like a little miniature city. I guess it's the city, but it's outside of Philadelphia, closer to Delaware. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really rough pocket. There's a, there's a, a state prison there for drugs and a bunch of other stuff. But from there, let's see. Well, eventually, well, I don't know. I'm not sure how in depth you want me to get here, but. Yeah, man, go for it. So I went, I went to, I got involved in, you know, criminal behavior. That was the environment that I grew up in. And, you know, I was gifted with a measure of intellect. So I applied that towards the wrong things at first. And, um, let's see, I want to say I went to prison in the early 2000s. And I was in prison for a few years. I went to like a really bad jail in Pennsylvania State Prison that was closed for human rights violations eventually, including torture. And um, let's see, that was right around the time I got out of there. And while I was in prison, I developed not only the methodology fits that, well, the beginning of it anyway. I was able to test it, you know, the first uh, versions of it on other inmates that I trained with. So I always sort of fell into, for some reason, I don't know if it's my personality or what, but I always sort of fell into a leadership role. And um, the people listen to me. They seem, they seem to want to hear what I had to say in terms of training. Obviously, at that point, I was already very well developed. I was already actually, at that point, I was competing in bodybuilding. Um, I skipped over, I guess, some things that may or may not be super relevant. I started competing in powerlifting. When I was 16, I did like this school powerlifting. 16, and then again at 18. Right around that time, I did my first bodybuilding contest. And by the time I went to prison, I was fairly well known as a national competitor. I had an endorsement contract and so forth. And, uh, but of course, I was still involved in. <laughs> criminal behavior and bad things and I made uh, I made some poor decisions early in life. When I was in prison, that afforded me enough time to think and study, read more. I read a lot in jail. I wrote a lot in jail. I wrote my first novel in jail. It was called How the Mighty Fall. I have never released that. I don't know if I will. If I do, I'll have to rewrite it, you know? Because I think it was, it's 17 years old. When I read it, I actually have a copy of it because it's all typed. So when I read it, I recognize myself, my own mannerisms, my own writing style, I should say. But it's changed so much, and I feel I'm, I'm so much better at communicating through words, through writing now than I was then. That it would be to, to rip. To release it or, or print it the way that it was written now would be, I feel like, an injustice to, to myself. So I haven't done that. And I don't think I probably, I guess that if I do, I'll, I'll probably 
it would be a situation where I where I write the whole thing over again, you know. But let's see what else. So when I was in prison, that was when Fistec got developed. That was the first, which I based that on stuff that I read. You know, I just read as much as I could. I have access to very little equipment, and that was the beginning of that story. That went on to be, you know, that's one of the most used methods of training and powerlifting now. And obviously, the, the mathematics side of that, like we have all the formulas and so forth, and everything's pretty much at this point perfected. And uh, I was bored with it at one point, you know, further along. And I realized, I started to realize that I'd done about as much as I could do with it. And uh, now I'm at a point now where I'm heading in a different direction. I'm still, of course, working as a powerlifting coach. I more of a more on a consultant level. I do work with people directly, but developed a methodology for training and competition in the sport. So, you know that that essentially my work for the last ten years, or maybe even twelve years, has been refining that method. I first printed the first book for the methodology. We first released that in 2015, so that's Two years later, we released Evolutions, which was improvements to the formulas. We have more data. So as is usually the case when you have more data, they allow a clearer picture to emerge. And uh, that's what happened. I think it's as good as it's going to get now. So I've been, I'm going to say it was, it was 2000, it was less than a year after Evolutions that I released the first book of poetry. And that was a big, that was like a big decision for me. Because I wrote, I wrote, obviously I wrote that book over the course of, I don't know, I think you, yeah, you said you read it, over the course of 10 years. <laughs> Most of it I wrote in the course of less than a year. But some of those poems are as old as 10 years old when it was published. So, maybe even more. I'm trying to think what the oldest poem is, but the point is it spanned most of my adult life. It was a, it was a record of relevant love experience for most of my adult life, like what that meant to me. And uh, so to release it, I was going to release it initially. I wrote it to be released under a pseudonym, Lucian Gray. And uh, I made a fake Instagram account. <laughs> And that was kind of where I tested it. I just kind of released fragments of poems and developed a, a small following on that. Nowhere near, nothing on the level that, that I have for the powerlifting stuff for, for my normal, my real identity. And I got a lot of feedback, positive feedback from like other writers. That resulted in me, actually it was one woman who really loved it. We exchanged a bunch of writing and her stuff was very good also she, you know she told me it was like because she was one of, she was basically the only maybe two people on that account that i tell who i actually was she was one of them and you know we became friends also on my normal account but of course not in real life and she implored me she was like i don't understand she said why would you not release it under your real identity you already have this big following whatever people that could definitely buy it read it and I explained that there may be some conflict and that it was an opportunity for people to sort of balk at the vulnerability aspect of it 
which not that I personally had an issue with it, but I wanted to keep that that part of my profession separate. I was already working as a columnist. And I, I, I got my first job writing as a columnist in 2002, and at this point, I was already I had my column with Lee S. Um So I had a good amount of my writing out there. Now there's over 100 articles, I believe. But at that time, I was like, I don't know if it's going to be a, a good transition to move into that. She said one thing that changed my mind completely, and that was that people who read it, who were like me, who had some depth of feeling and understanding and maybe some measure of intellect, also were interested in lifting. For them, it might give them permission to be sort of public about it. And, well, I couldn't, that, that pretty much took the choice from me. I pretty much had to do it at that point because I do feel there's no more masculine voice in literature. I feel it's died. You know, there's no there's no more Bukowski. Yeah, see, that interests me deeply because I think when we grew up, even through today, you know, we still have this dumb dichotomy of, you know, meathead jocks and then effeminate nerds, never the two shall meet. And so on one hand, you're a published poet, and on the other, you're an accomplished powerlifter. You have your own methodology. You do live between these two worlds. So what do you make of this cultural divide? And as a follow-up, how do you then navigate it? The cultural divide that you described. Personally, I find it's less and less. In terms of... I can tell you that what I saw after I released Clues, I saw 300-pound powerlifters putting poems on Instagram. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, uh, and I'm not at all saying that that was because of me or taking credit for that, but like to, to see that and to be able to encourage it and be in a position where people know that about me, well, sort of not that it was ever a secret, because I've always written, I've always... Obviously, I've been, like I said, I've been a columnist now for, what, 18 years or so. It was my first job as a columnist. Um, been writing my entire adult life. I actually started writing, I wrote my first poem, I was probably 11. You know, so it's, and that was right around the time I started lifting weights. So like we were talking about before, those two aspects of my character are inextricably linked. So for me, there is no real divide there. But I do understand what you mean, that there's like a cultural separation in terms of a very low-resolution sort of meathead picture of what people look like in in this community, in the community of powerlifting, let's say. Um, I don't think that's necessarily accurate you know, to, a, to, a, to a very high degree. There are a lot, and most, most of us have, if you take the time and kind of blow up the resolution, you know, most of us have more there. And a lot of times I think with men, certainly nowadays I feel like we're in an environment now where to speak your experience, to share your experience as a man is somehow, I don't know how to put it. Like it, it, it feels as though it's discouraged. Um, and when I say discouraged, I don't mean that people are like, hey, you shouldn't write poetry because you're a guy. or you know. And, and I won't lie. Like There was, to some degree, there was some 
I had some concern that maybe things wouldn't be as well met as I hoped. And I didn't really care if the book did well. I, I wrote it for catharsis. I wrote it for myself, and I released it for myself. You know, if you read the book, I look at it like a lot of it is, it's almost like a spell. It's almost like a prayer. I think a prayer is maybe the best way to describe it. Uh, just sort of releasing experiences in, in a cathartic way. And so, like, in terms of how I would, how I navigated those spaces, I just kind of threw myself into it. Like, I felt, I'm someone who I act on my conscience, you know, because I didn't when I was young. And uh, I suffered the consequences of that. And so I do listen to it now, and I, I do try to, I, I try to share the most accurate and authentic version of my own experience. You know, and in other words, I try to be true about everything that I do and say. So it wasn't like I ever really was not going to share the truth about who I was or was going to share some watered-down version of it. But it was more there was some concern there that things would be less than Walmart by that community or what have you. Uh, the result, the results were surprising to me. There was no negativity whatsoever. Um, it's like a million five-star reviews on Amazon and emotional, heartfelt um, reviews where people are capturing their experience of reading the book. And for some people, it was their first time being to expose the poetry of any kind. That's that's cool, you know. I don't. I, I, you know, I know reading reviews is probably bad practice anyway, but I read one on Goodreads, and it was it was actually maybe the best, maybe my favorite review I've ever read myself. And it was a woman, and she said, "This book changed the way I look at men." And you know, she didn't have anything to do with powerlifting. You could tell she was someone who came upon it, maybe read the maybe read the reviews or some sort of advertising and, and purchase it that way. But that sort of thing is, I feel like it's missing, you know, and certainly is missing from powerlifting culture. Uh, so in that way, there's a divide between those two things. I think that really everybody already has that stuff in them. You know, it's just a matter of kind of allowing it. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've always thought that poetry exists in everybody. It's like a live wire. It just depends on whether or not you touch it. Now, I think you've already answered this indirectly, but I want to ask it a bit more forward. What is it about poetry in particular which, you know, draws you not just to read it? It's obvious you consume it, and I definitely want to hear some of who your favorite poets are, but what drives you to write it? You know, are there certain poets whom you can identify with in terms of how you think or even how you live? Well, to someone who knows me, this probably won't be a surprise, but to someone who knows me on an external or surface way, it might be. Probably Sylvia Plath. I'm actually, I have a Sylvia Plath book in front of me right now. So, <laughs> actually, it's two. With an R3 right now from where I'm sitting. In all fairness, I'm by my table in my kitchen is covered in stacks of books. But, yeah, I mean, I can see two from right here. So, I mean, it's odd for, obviously a giant male powerlifter to, to say that he relates most with Sylvia Plath, but maybe I think I do. I think that much is true. 
and the differences are really, in terms of the things that we struggle with, are really just a matter of circumstance. You know, um, I don't think there's, well, I have to say, there are obviously very, very strong differences between men and women, but I don't think that they are on the level of the soul, and I think that's what's communicated with poetry. It's a, it's a kind of, I don't want to say magic, but something like that. It's hard, it's very hard to find, you know. Poetry, does it have to be rhythmic? No. Certainly there's rhythmic and rhyming poetry and prose in that book, but not much. <laughs> Most of powerful fragments of feeling and emotion. And when you reduce the human experience to that, I think you find that most of us are very similar. At least most of us that are capable of communicating our experience are very similar. And that same thread winds through powerlifting. We, we aren't all the same. There's very different backgrounds. And obviously, phenotypical characteristics are different, you know. But when you reduce all that, we have the same psychology. You know, there's something about competing in a sport that one of the prerequisites is a willingness to get under weights that will kill you, that could kill you, <laughs> quite literally kill you. And you might not. You might think to yourself, like, "Oh well, you know, the weights I lift probably won't kill me." Well, the goal is that eventually, not to die, but to be able to lift weights that could kill you. <laughs> right? That's what makes it impressive. Right? So, in other words, everyone that participates in powerlifting has a need for aggressive, risk-taking sportsmanship, and that usually is filling some psychological hole. Or, in my case, I think it's a it's a means of shadow integration, you know, I'm, like I said, I have somewhat of a violent nature. Over the years, I've learned to subdue it and control it, and I think a big part of that is finding outlets that are healthy or less detrimental, and in that way, it's not surprising to me that so many people in powerlifting are open to the arts, because what are the arts, really? It's a record of life. And what is life and suffering? So it's really just a, a record of suffering. <laughs> People that do what we do probably all can understand that. You know, it is kind of a tie that binds us. And in terms of who I, yeah, I would say probably class. I would say Bukowski because Bukowski was the first poet I ever really read. I can remember hearing about Bukowski when I was like maybe 12 years old and I asked for a Bukowski book. I want to say it was for Christmas or my birthday. I don't know who bought it for me, but I bought one. Somebody got me one. And uh, that's just kind of, it was like nothing I'd ever read. It's like nothing I'd ever seen or heard, you know. And it was the, the feeling that he described. Obviously, I wasn't, I wasn't pounding whiskey just yet, but <laughs> a lot of the suffering and the struggling touched me on a deep level. I felt connected in a way that I wasn't to anything else in the world at that point. And, uh, yeah, so I feel like those are the things that, that, that tie us together. Those are the things that attract me to someone in terms of their writing. Like a true and 
authentic record of their experience. Like what I was saying before, I mean, if you speak that way, it's easy to communicate that way in writing and uh, in any kind of way. You mentioned Bukowski, and I'm thinking of one of his more memorable lines in terms of a record of suffering, as you say. It's, uh, what could possibly compel a man to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning to shit, shower, and shave, and then get stuck in traffic? And, you know, I always saw him as sort of like the classic drunkard poet, right? Like, guy just sort of hanging out drinking, scrawling screeds. But I also see him as sort of like a victim, really, of modern circumstance. When you read his poetry, you can tell he just doesn't belong in his social environment. You know, I think through the cracks, you can hear him sort of long for those days where, like, people revered the written word, you know, where, where men kind of lived by a certain code or philosophy, and that he saw modernity really as, as grotesque. I think you're describing every good writer or poet right now. <laughs> it's just a constant, yeah. I like to look at it. even even Poe, you know, <laughs> face down in the street, you know. Like, uh, it's, this is, it's a common theme, and it's not, I don't think, a coincidence. I don't think it's just that these people want to just be drunk. I think that they just are doing their, their best to reconcile themselves to a world that's difficult and unkind and uh, to a populace that's thoughtless. You know, very difficult for people to feel things, people that feel things deeply. You know, they have some complexity to to the way they analyze their experiences. To be right. surrounded by people that don't add the layer that adds a layer of despondency. You know? Yeah, definitely. And I can see elements of Bukowski in your own poetry. It definitely cuts deep. And I figured actually now would be a great time if you have a poem or two of your own that you'd like to read, by all means. Let me read a song. So obviously, Clues About Ghosts was the first book, right? And uh, that really, that really, you know, changed things for me and allowed me to look at, allowed me to look at this as something that I could take more seriously that I already had in terms of publishing poetry. And uh, so I wrote a, I wrote a subsequent book called uh, The Thirteenth Ghost. You've read, I know you've read clues about ghosts, but essentially there are 12 players uh, other than myself, and they are the ghosts, and it's broken up into sections, you know, for each player. Uh, they're represented by mythological figures, Greek goddesses. Um, I mean, it's not accidental the way the roles are assigned. I mean, they are... They are the archetypes that I think fit the the individual best. So, with that said, uh, I, I moved into I did a, a seminar for like one of my seminars for the methodology where I was lecturing. I want to say it was in was it Salem or somewhere like that. And somebody in the in the somebody in the uh, seminar was a, a teacher. I didn't realize because we didn't really talk much during the event. He asked a couple questions. But afterwards, he came up and told me that you know, the reason he came was because of clues and that he included uh, analyzing one of the poems in 
the curriculum for his students, and he taught it to over 100 students. And I was like, man, that's, wow. <laughs> and uh, so I posted about it. You know, I posted what the guy told me, and he gave me a bunch of the their interpretations of it, you know, the, the, the students' analysis, the high school analysis of my one of my poems called uh, Screenshot. And it was, it was mind-boggling to see it's try to figure out my poetry was like, wow, you know, some of them were, one of, one of them was spot on. It was one of the lines that sort of stuck with me and still sticks with me. And that is, uh, he said, the, the poet remains optimistic about what he does not yet know. And I thought that was cool. You know, and I'm, I'm like, that basically sums up the poem. It is, it is despair, but it, and it's only, it's very short, it's only a paragraph, that poem. So I won't read that. I'll read instead another one from Clues, and then I'll, if you'd like, I'll read one from 13th Ghost. So the, 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 the new book is called 13th Ghost. It's not really, it's not about just one person, although the title may be a little bit misleading. It's actually, uh, there are a few sections, and one of them is about really just myself. Um, so, with that little background, I'll read you something from the first book, which you did read. And then, if you like, I'll read something from the new one. So, this is called It Wasn't Just That. Sylvia Plath longs for printed islands of permanence. And this one was an anchor shackled to my ankles, sealing my fate. And there was far more to it than that. You made your way, all bewildered, through the automatic airport double doors, ridiculous luggage and tow, barely recognizable from the pictures and video, but wearing a nervous embarrassment that somehow made the fact forgivable. And that outfit. You wore that, too. We didn't make it far driving, maybe an exit or so before I pulled off into a cracker barrel. The meal started guarded because you weren't exactly the girl I'd go FaceTiming every night for weeks. But we ordered and talked, and you held my hand from across the table, flustered and embarrassed again. And then you were that girl. You looked at me. I stared back and saw an endlessly repeating magnifying mirror, the entire picture painted, a fractal universe of recapitulating knowns and unknowns, spinning into themselves and each other, the person I've been searching for so long. It was there I fell in love with you. What has my life been from that moment but an extended footnote to that encounter, even now when I close my eyes and think of beauty? It's still you, I see, sitting there, too nervous to drink your coffee. I reach for my phone and stole a picture of you from a flattering angle. You look like an angel, an illusion, a time will belie. Eventually, I plastered that picture all over my social media, complete with a terribly recognizable caption. It was a cruel dream. The last 200 times I drove home at night, I was heading back to a very different reality than I face right now. 
or did last night or will tomorrow or ever again in the future. He told me he'd never had a home, that I would be your home. My home is an abandoned museum filled with artifacts, clues about my own suffering, the same that turns inside me, a museum of ghosts, desperately wicked phantoms. You welcome my bitterest enemy between us, and she's one of those, and now you join the Congress. I lie to myself that my life is less wasted if I write books about the wasting. But I trade everything that makes life worth living in the process. Hopeless and impatient. Writing. Not breathing, not tasting. Subsisting on memories alone. The idea that if I don't look for long enough, things could heal. But things don't heal. They fester and spread and metastasize. That's what things do. And one day I'll look again to find a lesser man in my place, dancing the Frank Sinatra behind you, holding your hips, swaying back and forth, spinning you around to look in your eyes, swearing that he loves you, pushing your head into his chest, just swaying, swaying. Paradise lost. I'm primarily influenced by what appeals to me sexually, but I swear, it wasn't just that. Okay, that was from Clues. And from the new one here, so this is from The 13th Ghost, which is the new one. It's not out yet, but... This is called Roscoe's. Full and sated from my complimentary breakfast in the comfort of a plus chair too opulent to be situated in a coffee shop like this one. I feign dizziness, adjusting the settings of my camera in my lap. Every time she looks at me, she smiles so hard there's no way she can even see me. But when she looks away, I can see her hollow corners. I can see the hopelessness. I've never been so in love. I've never fallen for someone through a camera lens. The unconventional beauty rests on a suede couch as plush as my chair, but just to my left. The natural light from the shop's front window traces the curves of her face and mane. Why am I not beside her? because I need to immortalize this moment. Between sips of my red eye, I'm quietly stealing photos of her. The woman I'd like to spend my life with. The flashes from the previous evening assail me intermittently. Her peculiar quirks are a mystery. I want to spend the coming decades attempting to unravel it. An acute hollow hides inside each corner where her outer molding meets. And I can see the truth in that. I want to know it. I want to know her. I never got to. That's written parenthetically. I fell in love through a camera lens. That's that one. Oh, man, what's it that they say? 
writing is easy, you only have to open a vein and bleed, those verses really pull on you, you know? And I remember hearing once that in pre-Islamic Arabia, before rival or warring tribes would meet in battle, they would present their best poets to come out into the open before all the assembled soldiers and recite their greatest verses. And whichever tribe had the best poet basically forfeited the battle to the other side. How many cool things happened during that period? Was that around the, uh, the outset of algebra and stuff? No, this was a little before. It's what Muslims call the period of ignorance or Jadiliyyah. It's uh, well before Muhammad. Okay. But after that, during the time of the recitation of the Quran, there was actually a guy who would follow Muhammad around, and he would recite his own poetry in hopes of defeating Muhammad's Quran. You know, the written and spoken word is just extremely powerful stuff. You know, talk about stereotypes. You go to the gym and tell guys you're into poetry, and they would probably just sort of look at you, you know. But people have to realize the magnitude of power that poetry has. I mean, it's really powerful. We don't, we don't realize it, but like, you know, yeah, like, the, look at, I mean, like you said, the Bible, the Quran, all these things are, it's essentially poetry. It has a power that's greater than the sum of its parts. The words do. They're, they're able to change things in a way that we can't. What also strikes me about your poetry is how you incorporate social media and sort of techie themes, which I think for a lot of writers, you know, they tend to avoid. But I see what you're doing, and it, it sort of feels like almost like an extension of modern feeling. So this is my experience now. There is a lot of that, I noticed. I know what you mean. There's a lot of people that seem to they try to pretend they're in a different era <laughs> that maybe would fit what they want to write a little bit better, you know, and so they leave certain things out or to talk about a text message or a cam girl or, <clears throat> you know, somehow it's not literature then, but it, it definitely is. I mean, that's the definition of it. <laughs> and it's so true that it can't be silenced, you know. So, and with all that, how did it feel to have classroom teachers and students receive your poetry? Yeah, it was more than one, because once that, that teacher came out, another teacher commented on it and said that she was doing something. And someone else actually emailed me and said, asked for permission to do it. And I'm like, I really never in a million years, especially because it's such, the, the, I would think for high school students, it's entirely inappropriate. Um, but there are certain certain poems that aren't like, and I think screenshots an example of that. The one that he used was maybe I was like, wow, that is. I'm like, with your students, I'm like, which which poem did you look at? You know, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how that could possibly not go horribly. I mean, it, it just seems like there's various doors to hell that are left open in that scenario, and uh, like it could just go terribly wrong, you know, but for the teacher and you know, for everybody involved in terms of trying to discuss or analyze or certain things that, like, we're not allowed to talk about now. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was definitely cool. Yeah, it was an interesting experience for me. It was probably one, one of the highlights of my adult life, you know. Now, Sweet, when does your second book come out? I wrote it a year ago, and uh, almost entirely uh, a year ago. And so... I, I decided to let it sit, which I did the same thing with Clues. I let it sit for a full year because I wanted to be sure that 
a lot of times when we're recording our experiences, certainly romantic experiences, they can be colored by the nearness of the things, you know, uh, and that can be bad. But if we wait an extended period of time until we're comfortable with the subject matter to write about it, then you run into the issue of the distance between what you're writing and the actual event becomes so great that we're, we're not really ever able to reconcile the truth of the experience to the way that we would record it, you know. So I found I write things as they happen, uh, brutally and honestly as I want. And then I take time. And then I heal. And then go back and look. And that's what I did here. After a year or so, I, I went back and looked and I started to read it again. I wanted to be sure that I wasn't. Yeah, I wanted to be sure I wasn't saying things that I didn't feel were authentic or true or that I was maybe saying out of just anger alone. And uh, as I read through it again, I found that wasn't the case. And I'm fortunate now to be in a situation in my life where I have a great woman. You know, <laughs> I'm not suffering in that way. Which is, that, that's been a source of suffering for me for most of my life, one way or another. Romantic connection and attempting to sort of preserve myself while preserving that connection. I'm not the person anymore that I was when I wrote Clues. Not nearly. You know, I'm a different, I'm an entirely different version of myself. That's a former version of me, which I love and understand and am empathetic towards. You know, I actually have a very good understanding because I was there. I felt it. I know why I did the things I did. I know why I felt the way I felt. But I don't feel that way anymore. A lot of those things were lessons. Most of them were lessons. You know, I fumble with things just like every human. Uh, certainly emotional things. And uh, I think that self-analysis is crucial. And that's kind of what these books are, an attempt at self-analysis, understanding myself and my motives. And once I understood that after the first book, it, it, it elicited a change that was involuntary. And things began to change for me. What I wanted began to change. And, you know, I wasn't... I tried to hold on to too much of the old stuff, I think, at first. And now I'm in a place where I'm more comfortable letting that go. It just takes time, you know. I think that it's very important to let writing sit for a little bit. And so I just, I just uh, began two days ago editing. I should have it ready to rock. Should be ready to go by the end of the year. That's my goal: is to have it published before Christmas. Maybe a, maybe a good Christmas gift. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but definitely before the end of the year. You know, I'm looking for to the closure, you know, to the uh, catharsis. That's all we have for today, guys. I just want to thank Sweet Burns for his time and his poems. Music by Robert Slump. For Scholars and Iron, this is Joe, signing off.